In the United States, various laws aim to protect patients against discrimination perpetrated by clinicians, but such discrimination remains an enduring problem. Meanwhile, discrimination by patients against clinicians lacks a clear legal solution. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Kamani Paul-Emile, a professor and associate director of the Center on Race, Law, and Justice at the Fordham University School of Law. As part of the journal's series on the fundamentals of health law, Professor Paul Emile has written a perspective article about U.S. laws related to discrimination in health care. Professor Paul Emile, you write in your perspective article that discrimination, both by clinicians and by patients and families, is well documented and occurs relatively commonly. So when did U.S. law begin to address the problem of discrimination perpetuated by clinicians? So for much of this country's history, we've had rampant discrimination, including in the healthcare setting. So, for example, up until the mid-20th century, many hospitals were segregated. Black patients or patients of color were often denied access to whites-only healthcare facilities or received inferior care in under-resourced blacks-only wards. Some patients died en route to a hospital that would treat them on the basis of their race. So it wasn't until 1964 that Congress enacted the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And actually, let me just go back for one second, because there's an important law that sort of sets up the reason why we needed civil rights legislation here. There was a law passed in 1946 called the Hill-Burton Act, which allowed federal funds to be used to construct whites-only hospitals, so long as other healthcare facilities were available to treat Black patients and other patients of color. So it funneled millions in tax dollars to subsidize Uh, states to develop segregated hospitals and nursing facilities. So this increased and institutionalized inequality. So Congress decided to act in 1964 when it passed a sweeping civil rights law. And as part of this law was a section called Title VI. Title VI made it unlawful for hospitals that received federal funds to discriminate on the basis of a patient's race, color, or national origin. So this was a very important law. Another law that really gave Title VI some teeth was the Medicare and Medicaid Act. And so interestingly, people don't tend to think about the Medicare and Medicaid Act, which were parts of the Social Security Act passed in 1965. People don't think of it as a civil rights law, but it really enabled other civil rights laws to become more powerful because Medicaid and Medicare subsidized health care for the aged, for low-income people, for people with certain disabilities. So hospitals really wanted to get these funds, so they all jumped in to participate in Medicare and Medicaid. But because they were all receiving federal funds, they were then covered by Title VI, the anti-discrimination provision of the Civil Rights Act. And then what about later laws such as EMTALA and the ACA? What effect have they had on discrimination in healthcare? And where are there still gaps in protections for patients? Okay, so that's a great question. So EMTALA is another really important law. EMTALA doesn't explicitly cover what we think of as protected categories or classifications like sex or race or ethnicity or religion. What it says is hospitals can't refuse to treat patients who come to an emergency department. They're entitled to receive a screening to see if they have an emergency condition, and then they need to be stabilized if necessary. So people call this the anti-dumping statute because hospitals would refuse to treat certain patients based on perceptions of their ability to pay. So this requires, if you presented an emergency department, 
you're entitled to a screening and stabilizing treatment. But of course, we know that discrimination occurs. There's, you know, there's implicit bias. Discrimination occurs without people explicitly discriminating, explicitly stating that we're not going to treat you because of X, Y classifications. So Antala addressed implicit bias and also unspoken discrimination because we know perceptions of ability to pay are often proxies for other protected classifications. And then, as you mentioned, more recently, we have the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, which was enacted in 2010. This law has a provision called Section 1557, which is a civil rights provision, and it's much broader than Title VI. It covers discrimination on the basis of race, sex, religion, national origin, but it also covers discrimination on the basis of sex, which Title VI does not, and it interprets sex very broadly. It interprets sex to include pregnancy status, sexual orientation, gender identity, sex characteristics. And in addition to covering medical centers, Section 1557 also applies to health insurers. It requires them to not discriminate, but also to collect and report data on the racial and ethnic background of the populations they serve, as well as the languages they speak, as an effort to see what's happening, to see if segregation is sort of happening under the surface or beyond what we could generally see without such data. So it's another really important civil rights provision, the ACA Section 1557. As you write in your article, persons with disabilities are among those protected from discrimination in healthcare. So what does it mean for a program or service to undertake reasonable accommodations to mitigate the disqualifying aspects of a disability? Sure. So the ADA and the Rehab Act are two anti-discrimination laws that protect people with disabilities. The Rehab Act applies to federal agencies and entities, and the ADA covers pretty much everybody else, both public and private. And unlike discrimination on the basis of sex or race, where we can say it's never okay to think about somebody's race or sex when determining whether to provide treatment, disability gets a little more complicated because sometimes it is appropriate to think about or to take into consideration someone's disabling condition to determine whether they are eligible for treatment. So, for example, there's some cases where a person's disabling condition may seriously compromise their ability to benefit from the treatment. So in these situations, we need to think about it. For example, it may make sense to say that a person with metastatic cancer is disqualified from getting an organ transplant. But it would be wrong to say someone with HIV should be disqualified from getting ear surgery. And in making these determinations as another mechanism to make sure that discrimination isn't happening, we have to look at whether reasonable accommodations can be made that can allow the person to benefit from the treatment. So the test is, does the disabling condition affect the person's ability to benefit from the treatment. And if reasonable accommodations can be made to increase their ability to benefit, then they have to be provided so long as they're not too costly. Discrimination in healthcare isn't perpetuated only by clinicians, but sometimes by patients and families. So what are the legal and other challenges that present in cases of discrimination by patients? So you're right. This is an area that gets also a little more complicated because unlike discrimination perpetuated by medical centers or healthcare workers or clinicians, where we have clear laws that prescribe such behavior that prohibit that kind of discrimination. With patients, there really isn't a specific or particular law that protects healthcare workers from discrimination by patients. 
And this type of discrimination can take many forms. It can be a patient rejecting a physician based on their race or sex or ethnicity or religion. It can be demeaning behavior on the part of patients, rude comments. But the rejections are really the most problematic ones. And they're particularly problematic because of EMTALA, the law I mentioned before. Hospitals are legally required to screen and stabilize anyone who presents in an emergency room to see if they have an emergency medical condition. So if you're the patient and you come in and they have to screen and stabilize you, but if you say, you know, I don't want the Muslim doctor or I don't want the Asian physician, it kind of puts healthcare centers in a bind. And again, as I mentioned, there's no explicit law protecting this. And also, one other thing to keep in mind, patients have informed consent rights. So patients have the right to refuse medical treatment, but it also includes the right to refuse wanted treatment from an unwanted clinician. And this is a well-respected legal and ethical principle that's based in legal rules to protect patients from battery. So again, these patients are protected from being treated by a clinician they don't want, but clinicians also have interests. So if a clinician is consistently being rejected by patients in a certain area on the basis of their race or sex, and if the medical center continually accommodates the patient's demands to reassign these patients, this could give rise to employment discrimination claims on the part of the healthcare workers. So if they're constantly moved around because patients don't want them to provide treatment on the basis of race or ethnicity, this can create a hostile work environment in violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. This is the same Civil Rights Act that I mentioned before that had Title VI. So it really puts medical centers in a bind. They're kind of, in a sense, damned if they do, damned if they don't. If the medical center accommodates a patient's wishes for a doctor of a different race or ethnicity, then they could be found to be discriminating against the assigned clinician and opening themselves up to legal liability. But if they don't accommodate the patient's demand, then they could be violating laws against battery by forcing the patient to be treated by an unwanted doctor without consent. But on the other hand, if they don't screen and stabilize the patient, then they could be found liable for violating EMTALA. So there aren't clear legal rules, but there are ethical considerations that can be taken into account to balance the rights and interests of all parties and hopefully to protect them. So finally, and you're just leading up to this, what further steps do you think will be necessary to protect both patients and clinicians from discrimination in healthcare? What kinds of laws and regulations do you think we need going forward? Well, I think it's a tough thing in terms of laws and regulations, but I do think we can have policies and ethical rules that can protect all parties. Because a bright line rule that says patients can never reject clinicians or you can never accommodate these requests could create its own problems. So for example, a female patient who comes in, a female OBGYN patient who comes into a hospital and says she only wants to be treated by female physicians, let's say that she's making a request for gender concordance, we know that in certain situations, such accommodation would be clinically and ethically appropriate. Similarly, if a patient comes in and let's say the patient was a veteran and says they don't want to be treated by a clinician who reminds them of a former enemy combatant. Under those circumstances, former trauma or PTSD, that could also be clinically or ethically significant in terms of 
deciding whether or not to accommodate that patient's requests. So bright line rules or just like zero tolerance rules aren't necessarily going to solve the problem. Instead, we need policies and more sort of flexible ethical considerations. So for example, when patients first come in, the most important thing to do, you have to assess the patient's medical condition. And if an important emergency condition presents, then that patient has to be screened and stabilized in keeping with EMTALA. Under those circumstances, if the patient rejects the clinician, then perhaps if that was the only clinician on staff, you could have a nurse or perhaps a trainee do the initial um, screening evaluation while making very clear that this goes against the appropriate standard of care, but also making clear to the patient that all the clinicians on staff are well-trained and are able to provide appropriate care. So it's kind of a negotiation and persuasion to maybe get the patient to accept care. You also want to assess the patient's decision-making capacity. Sometimes patients who are rejecting clinicians may have a transient mental condition that could be treated that would then allow the patient to accept treatment. You also want to find out the reason for the request. As I mentioned before, some rejections of clinicians are ethically and clinically significant. So you want to find that out. You then have to figure out your options for responding. You may not be able to accommodate the patient's request because you only have a certain number of clinicians on staff, and that needs to be explained to the patient. And through the, as I mentioned, negotiation, persuasion, sometimes talking to the patient's family with the patient, you can occasionally convince the patient to accept the treatment. But in those cases where the patient is really intransigent and it's not an emergency situation, then you can think about transfer. And through all this, you need to consider the effect on the clinician and support the clinician. And so to this end, medical centers have to have explicit policies for dealing with sort of these biased patient encounters. Many medical centers have explicit policies for dealing with difficult patients, violent patients, but there also has to be one for dealing with patients that express racist or bigoted or sexist views towards clinicians because this type of patient behavior takes a significant toll on clinicians and contributes to burnout. And this type of patient behavior happens in healthcare centers across the country, and it's not as uncommon as we would hope it would be. Thank you, Professor Paul Emile. 